0: Welcome to the Vet Church podcast. Vet Church interviews are authentic, sacred, and inspirational. Vet Church is open to anyone who appreciates the sacrifice made by the women and men who put on a uniform and served this great nation. Find out
1: more at vetchurch.com or retiredarmychaplain.com. All righty.
0: So everybody in Vet Church, I just want to say hello. I'm sitting in a... Aravaca. Arizona. Arizona. And um, I'm with uh, a veteran from the Vietnam War, Dan Kelly. I met Dan, um, he was mentoring at a group for PTSD. And he's one of the reasons Vet Church got started. He's one of the guys that talked me into it. I, I think it was a crazy idea from a, a, a dear friend. Of mine, and uh, and Dan kept saying, "Oh, you ought to do it." He's right, <laughs> and you know, here we are building community and um, and trying to find a way back for some some crazy stuff in all our lives. And the reason I've asked Dan to do, you know, I'm really I, I keep tight strings on this thing. We don't advertise stuff. We don't um, in the vet church part. We don't advertise things. We don't have an offering plate. We don't want to ask you for to do anything, because that's not what life's about. This is about helping people live, because people help me live, and I'm just trying to give back a little bit in that, in that world, um, to give back right here, right now. So um, Dan Kelly has invited me out to his house, and you guys know who I am. I will drive. I've just drove 24 hours to be here. This shirt's a little dirty. And uh, and then Dan took me around the community and introduced me to some people. This place is incredible. And so, Dan, we're going to talk about spirituality. Now, you are a postulate for priesthood in the Episcopal Church. You are Jewish.
1: I have Jewish roots, and I, I, uh, why don't we start this over? Can we do that? No, because we're on. It's okay. live,
0: and we're and and, and and you see, and it's very authentic too. We well, can't even start go. over. And, and so, you're also a Buddhist, also. So there's a, a lot there. I'm a Buddhist.
1: Um, I I have deep roots as a Christian. Um, I've been a Benedictine monk. Um, so I've had a I've had an interesting spiritual walk, to say the least. How old are you, Dan? I am pushing seventy-three.
0: So, and as soon as this is over, we're going to go over to retired Army chaplain and we're going to talk about war and some of the great things that you did to help heal and to heal this nation. Right?
1: If you say so, man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was good stuff, folks. And you know you know what I mean? Like, in in a world of, of packaged BS, I've been able to see through some of that and find some good stuff. And one of the good things I found was that I needed somebody, you know. And Dan's a little bit older than me, and and he came alongside of me and helped me and mentored me a little bit, just as I'm helping mentor some other people. And I hope you guys are doing the same things because you you have to have friends, you have to have
1: people that you're well, mentoring. Let me interrupt yeah, you right there. Let me interrupt you right there because, you know, in life, what counts is relationship and authenticity. Yeah, man. And all of the dogmatic theology and all of the bullshit from the pulpit. Aside, regardless of what tradition it is, yeah, it, it doesn't matter. So, so talk is, about is, that, is well. When you come to grips with the horror of what one faces in, in, in war, um, sooner or later you you realize that you are either uh, gonna be a rage and live as a rage and a nonspecific rage looking for something to tack it onto.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's a point at which when everything starts falling apart in your life when you seek some sense of peace. And um, so, you know, occasionally I still have flashbacks. You know, occasionally, um, hell, daily, my heart breaks for the, the people that uh, we lost. But I also have learned that if I can be grounded in a vision of a possibility greater than the suffering, I don't have to have it, I can have it, it, does, it, it doesn't have me.
0: That's right, you're not being controlled by it. I'm this. not being
1: controlled by it, but I have it.
0: Yeah.
1: And you know, it was a long walk to get here.
0: So, so talk like talk about that like the walk itself. Like what how did you do it, Dan? Like how did you make how old you seventy three? How did you make it to seventy three when so many have given up?
1: Um, pig-headedness, stubbornness, miracles. Um, when I came home from Vietnam, I well first of all, I had grown up in military schools and military academies. So by the time I was 14 years old, I was an expert with an M1 Garand. I knew the manual of arms inside and out. Um, I was a regular little Martinet. My whole life had been programmed for duty, honor, and country. I had been groomed for the academies, but then I went to a public high school for a couple of years and dropped out. So when I got to the fleet in Vietnam and there was very little honor in anything uh, that I experienced and uh, I spent uh, almost two years off the coast of Vietnam and a number of different venues. Uh, my first day in Vietnam, um, I had spent a year on the job training. I wanted to be an air traffic controller and a yeoman, a clerk typed my orders to AG school instead of AC school. So I suddenly went to weather school and became a meteorologist. I went to an accelerated school because I was supposed to have a year on the job. I'd barely squeaked through the school and I got to the fleet, they lost my orders uh, and they lost my promotion to E-4 and they put me on deck. And the flight deck on an aircraft carrier is a very dangerous place. So I rode. I slept in a in a gun emplacement on an oiler, and met the ship in the Tonkin Gulf and rode across on a bosun's chair, which was kind of cool. It's an e-ticket ride. Um, I'd been aboard, and they sent me to that to V one division. I said, Well, I don't know what a V one division is. Well, they put a blue shirt on my back and a bag of chains on my back, and I suddenly was a plane handler uh, in dress shoes and you're supposed to have a composite sole for working on a flight deck. You're in 30 knots of wind, you got hydraulic fluid everywhere, you got propellers turning, jets turning, stuff going every which way. I had no clue, I had no experience with any of that. So I went up on deck and the first thing that happened, a jet blast defector went down, an A6 was turning up, hit afterburner, and I got hit by the jet blast, and I ice skated across the deck, and this old boy Bardall leapt out from behind a piece of yellow gear, tackled me, and we rolled into the nets. And I'm looking at the ocean 70 feet below me and I was that far from being dead. I was a little puckery. So I think, well, I'll get this figured out. And they had me running birds on, wings on little birds. Um, an A4 Skyhawk little bird has no uh, hydraulic steering in the nose gear. So it's a castering nose gear. When they come off in resting wire gear, somebody has to run out and put a bar in the wheel and run in front of the jet to steer it. Or two guys run out and grab the wing and brace themselves. Pilot hits the engine, they use your bodies as a pivot, and you duck and run like hell for the foul line to get hit by, keep from getting hit by a jet blast. So the first four birds that I ran was kind of cool. thought I was getting the hang of it. Nobody told me that there was a slat on the leading edge of the wing. So I grabbed it like this and like this, my thumb on the thread, under the slat, slat slam shut, cut my thumb off. Now I've been in Vietnam six hours. Did you got your thumb though. They sewed it back on. They did a pretty remarkable job.
0: Can y'all see that?
1: Uh, it mostly works. Can't play the guitar oh. with a darn anymore because of it. I used to play classical guitar. So, I won't go through the whole litany, but that was my that was my introduction. After I had my thumb cut off I had a cast from here to around my shoulder and the rest of it and So you finally like use were... my arm and they assigned me to the, where do they assign me to primary flight control, the tower.
0: Place you're supposed to be.
1: Well no, actually that would have been uh, a different place, but um, the irony is now I'm in a tower and my first task in the tower, of the air boss uh, at that time, a commander, equivalent of lieutenant colonel, uh, demanded that I get him a cup of coffee. I asked him how I warmed it with cream and sugar. I went and got his coffee, and I brought it to him. And he threw it in my face and told me to get it right. And it was from that point on that I realized that I was nobody.
0: And you were drafted, right? Or
1: no, I enlisted. Did you enlist enlisted before the Gulf of Tonkin? Okay. I went to boot camp in 1963. And you know, so, uh, and that's another thing that's peculiar about my age. There's a group of us that that uh, left high school between 60 and maybe 63, 64, who grew up in the 50s. The world we left was not the world we came home to. We came home to the 60s, full blown. So there were some seminal moments for me. Toward the end of my last cruise, one of the last things that happened one evening in the tower, a group of pilots and uh, a few of us up there, and by that time I was primary flight control petty so officer, which is a pretty cool job. And um, we were talking about having a big party when we got back to Car- Coronado, and uh, um, so we had this great conversation, and I was going to get weather balloons and. Swipe some helium bottles, and we're gonna we'll make this big thing, right? So, um, the next day, we had uh, an alpha. had an alpha strike. Everything in everything in every branch of the service that could fly went after Cap Air Force Base in North Vietnam. It was the first time we had been allowed to go after the Russian pilots. And so everybody was really stoked about it. And two of those guys that I sat with, I listened as they died, Um, and that had a profound impact on me. And about the same time, I had been reading. I just finished reading the Americanization of Emily, and. There's a soliloquy in that book that stuck with me. And on the bombed out steps of the cathedral in England, the dean of that cathedral uh, said something to the effect that uh, without dignity, spirit dies, and without spirit, man loses his reason for being. If he's no more than an animal. He needs a whip and a master to feed him and control him. If he's indeed unique and godlike, he needs neither. He must possess his own gourd vine and plow his own field. That resonated with me powerfully. Later that day, I went down on the after sponsor the the, the back end of the left-hand side of the ship, having a smoke. Chinese and, and, well, uh, Vietnamese fishing junks, like big Chinese junks, would have maybe 100 dinghies aboard. And they'd go out in a fleet of three, four, five of those junks. And then those dinghies would go out, spread nets a mile or two in circumference around those boats. If they happened to get in the way where we well, were in the middle of their so we just drove over and we killed them. They didn't matter. Standing on that sponson, not any further from here to that wall, I locked eyes with an old man, the Ho Chi Minh beard, the peak straw hat, um, And bloody planks, probably from family members or kin of some sort, came flying up between us in the wake of the ship. And the look on his face was, why? Why?
0: You still see that look?
1: I do. I'll see that man's face for the rest of my life. So when I was asked to re-enlist when I was in boot camp I had volunteered for river for river boats and they offered me 10 grand to go to Treasure Island and uh, I want, want, would have wound up as a coxswain of my own uh, river boat which is uh, cool deal uh, yeah cool deal on the Delta I don't think so <laughs> so you know I, I suggested they pound sand and I was offered
0: What's that movie apocalypse now if y'all Need, need a little visual. Just,
1: Just think of that. It's, it's a good, good visual thing. for that. And they offered me uh, Cargo Master with Air America uh, smuggling, well, we weren't going there, but you know, they, uh, that would be operating as a civilian in Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, and Vietnam in civilian aircraft, and if you were shot down, you were toast.
0: Air America. Air America. Another great movie.
1: So what I, what I did was put that little soliloquy on my re-enlistment questionnaire and said what I want is out. And I got an early out. I missed Tet by two months. I got out 17 November 1967. I got back to the States and the world that I re-entered was not the same. The 60s was full blown, it was the end of 67, and I didn't fit. And I had uh, been a high school dropout, so I decided to go to college. Well, I lied my way into Cal State Fullerton, was living in the dorm. There we go. (laughs) And uh, of course, I got caught, but it took about three months. And I was elected president of the dorm senate, uh, and so the dean came down and sat down with me and said, "Maybe you should go to Fort Community College, and then transfer after two years, and you can live in the dorm." I said, "Okay, well that's cool." So long about that time, and I so was it so like, GI got, Bill money and all I was, this stuff? Okay. I got $135 a month on my GI Bill, and in those days that covered tuition and books, if you can believe it. That was it. That, that was it. That's all we got. Um, and I worked, I, I worked uh, 30 hours a week in a liquor store. I was number two man in a, in a liquor store and got robbed a couple of times. It was interesting. But anyway, I'd been, I'd been in college maybe six weeks living in the dorm and I was eating dinner at the dorm. And I got surrounded by some guys who started calling me a baby killer.
0: You saw horror. You there missed. are a lot of
1: things that I left out.
0: Yeah. And it, it, yeah, I know that, because <laughs> we've talked. But but it's there. The emotion was there. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you're going to school to do something with your life because you're not dead. You're being robbed and you're you're blown over being robbed like it was, uh, whatever. And interesting, I think, was the word you used. And now we're talking about you continuing living.
1: So at that moment, there was a part of me that wanted to kill him, there was a part of me that was heartbroken and on top of everything else I had a Vietnamese uh, roommate, a kid from uh, Saigon, uh, who had come to the States to go to college at Cal State Fullerton. Now that poor little guy that was—I don't mean that in a negative sense—and I apologize for that. Um, that poor kid. I had a flashback one one night, and I came out of my rack, uh, ready to do business
0: in the in the dorm room. In the dorm room. With with, and with this
1: poor Vietnamese kid sitting there, and of course he freaked out, and you know it took a minute for me to
0: see. So you're getting spit on. Him. What was happening to your roommate? Was he being treated poorly?
1: Um, actually no, um, he wasn't. Um, but then I began to, you know, I began, at first I thought, well, maybe I can show them that we should support this war. And then I started digging into it and I wrote a, I wrote a paper, my first term paper, and I submitted it to Nation magazine and it almost got published. But it was on the strategic Hamlet model and the history of it and the failure in Vietnam. And I began to realize I'd been betrayed. That everything that I believed in when I went there to kill a commie for Christ, a comma, a, 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 a comment that was current in those days. We used to have chaplains praying, the Catholic and Baptist guy would vie with one another to see who could be the most patriotic about killing commies for Christ.
0: Um, we call this betrayal these days. We call this moral injury.
1: It is moral injury. So what I discovered is that I'd been had, and my whole generation had been had. i have been raised on duty, honor, and country. I'd been raised on your word is your bond, that integrity uh, and doing your part for your nation is responsibility. And I trusted that what we were doing was honorable and I discovered it wasn't at several levels. And I got pretty radicalized. I, I sent my medals back and, you know, I, when my first wife and I, our first date was an SDS meeting. Which is? Students for Democratic Society was a pretty radical organization. We helped shut down Cal State Fullerton. So I got very radicalized and um, was very much involved in the anti-war movement.
0: What's going on in your soul at this time?
1: pain. Profound rage, profound pain, uh, profound sadness. Um, uh, a sense of mad- madness in the sense of insanity. What in the hell is, you know, what is this? What's real? What's real? After a while I took some time off and I uh, went to an Anglican Benedictine monastery that was a postulant for um, uh, a life as a monk. See, so so
0: that's a shift. That's a shift. It's a needed, huge
1: shift. I was also carrying 20 academic units. I had a 3.6 grade point average my first semester with 20 units. I couldn't write a sentence coherently.
0: To give you all an idea, a unit, we're, t- we're talking about in 12 hours, it's full-time these days. Yeah. So 20 is like... You know, it's a normal veteran thing to do. You just go all the way, right? Because work more and
1: it's better, right? Absolutely, you know, but- <laughs> Work under, more than you don't think. But underneath that, I set out to prove that I was as good as anybody, that I had value, that-
0: That you mattered.
1: That I mattered. And it damn near killed me. And the, and the several months that I spent in the monastery were an extraordinary opportunity to begin a metamorphosis that's been a lifelong process.
0: Well, you say the word metamorphosis, you and I use some big terms sometimes, and we understand- I'm talking
1: about a, a, a caterpillar turning into, a pupa turning into a butterfly. And I'm talking about, I'm talking about coming from a pile of shit. I'm talking about coming from when you have no sense of worth I'm talking about when your soul is defeated to having joy and satisfaction in your life.
0: A total shift.
1: It's a long process for me.
0: But it's a total shift.
1: But it's a total shift. So then I went back to college. I left the monastery. I realized that really wasn't my vocation. Um,
0: That were they celibate? Yeah. Oh boy, that wouldn't work for um, me either.
1: <laughs> you know, I no. <laughs> it's just not um, <laughs> That was a consideration, but I have to tell you, the community life was an extraordinary experience. There's a level of love and support, uh, and a commonality in life that's profound. Um, but I had two little issues come up for me.
0: What were they? Really?
1: The Virgin Birth and the Resurrection.
0: Straight faith there,
1: so it's the, totally
0: unprovable in any way.
1: So when the prior asked me, I said, "Brother Daniel, why are you leaving?" I said, "Well, I have a little. I said I can even deal with the celibacy thing. I said, but I've I've got a little bit of a knee jerk over this whole resurrection thing, and, and the virgin birth kind of makes my teeth itch." And he laughed and said, "Go in peace, my son." And um,
0: and and, and today you're you're a professing Christian.
1: Well, we'll get there.
0: Okay, we're going there. Because this is, this is the kind of thing so many people think, well, I've got to have it all together because it's all or nothing. And life isn't all or nothing. Well,
1: life is never all or nothing. Never. Never. And so I'm going to go through a real quick uh, piece here. And I, I wound up getting my, my degree and I was married Um, Kids? uh, Not yet. I went to uh, Silicon Valley um, and fell in love with a a Renaissance culture of invention and creation. It was just kick-ass. It was off the charts cool.
0: The antithesis of death and
1: destruction. The antithesis of death and destruction. We were creating stuff that had never been done. We were breaking all the rules of physics. Well, not all of them. but Some of them. And we're doing something and it was all about why not so in those days, the culture you know, uh, was really wild you know you might have a historian, a statistician, an electrical engineer, a mechanical engineer, and a textile engineer all working on the same semiconductor problem, just because we're all fascinated so I mean half of us were a bunch of stoned out hippies you know or Um, No, not you. Some of the guys were, (laughs) well, of course, never, you know. Um, um, But it was a fascinating and incredible arena to be in. And I I started playing Monopoly. And for a long time, and I was driven, because I was still on that hamster wheel that I had to prove that I was as good. That you had value. That I had value. You know, and it's, so it was that's a all, lot of us in Bay That was, Yeah, it is. So it's all about proving that in spite of the things that I did and the things I participated in, in spite of carrying a soul ache over participating in the murder of three million people.
0: Those who died in Vietnam.
1: And, yeah, and the 58,000 of my brothers and sisters. I got on the hamster wheel, and I and I shut down. I was absolutely driven, and I started playing Monopoly, and I did the corporate thing. Um, I've uh, I've been a brand manager, a, a product manager, a business manager, a vice president of small, and recent details, a CEO. I've done a lot of things in that. 20-year period of time. And pushing and pushing and, and pushing? And pushing and pushing and pushing. Did pushing. that get you what you were looking for? Absolutely not. Why not? Because I was no soul in it. And the confrontation that I had to face the first time I laid people off and collected a bonus, the confrontation I had to face when I dealt with people who were ruthless, heartless, and inhumane was so at odds at my own core values that there came a point when I saw, I, I was, I was the young man on the way up. I made a lot of money, I had a lot of prestige. At one point I far, formed a couple of corporations that were doing very well. Um, you know, I flew 1st class. I...
0: Drove big cars. I
1: drove my Mercedes and I, you know, I have my personal dresser at Nordstrom's, and I was fucking miserable. Why were you miserable? Because you had it all. Why were you miserable? I had nothing. What do you mean? I had a shimmer. I had a vision of, of a reality that I bought into that had nothing to do with my humanity and my soul. Uh, and and talk, I said,
0: Talk about that a little bit. Having it all, but not having anything.
1: The Hebrew sage Hillel, the rabbinical sage uh, Hillel, um, is famously quoted as saying 2,000 years ago, um, in the beginning of the current era, uh, if I'm not for me, who will be? If I'm only for me, who am I? And if not now, when? And along about that time, I read that. I had my second wife, um, characterized herself as an idiot savant. She was a brilliant artist. Um, In 1985, I started getting really bad flashbacks, or 70, 85. We went to a uh, 4th of July party. And in those days, there was always a mirror and a line of coke in every bathroom, bedroom, and uh, wherever.
0: Mirror and a line of coke, we're talking. uh, We're
1: talking cocaine.
0: Cocaine!
1: And, um... um, The power trip. The power trip. And these are, we're all, we're all men in our our late 30s, early 40s, at that point, who are uh, on a roll. And, I absolutely came unglued at that party. It horrified my wife, two women who were friends of ours, held me in their arms for hours as all of the stuff came up. Crying, Yeah. Pain. Deep. And along about that time, the semiconductor industry went into a massive downturn the Japanese were dumping 64ks. It cost us 12, 13, 14 dollars uh, in that range to manufacture one, and they were dumping them in the American market for seven bucks a piece. This is here so the uh, people making integrated circuit semiconductor devices, the little chips that go in everything, um, all used the products that I developed. I had uh, a number of patents that I shared with some other people and developed some products and I had two companies and was doing very well and I was pouring a ton of money and developing something that turned out not to work. Um, suddenly we had a 60% reduction in force in, in my customer base and my sales went to making me a lot of money to maybe $2,000 a month. And in 1986, Hey man, I'm living on two thousand a month. <laughs> you have to understand that in ninety-eight, in nineteen eighty-six dollars, I had a three thousand dollar mortgage, and you know, so if you equate that in today's yeah, yeah. dollars, you, you, it's probably money, double that. Big money, Yeah, I was, I was doing well, but I wasn't, and the industry was suffering, but what was going on inside of me, also. Uh, was deeply suffering. My, I came home one day. My wife left me. Uh, she met me at the door. and said, "We need to have a, a little summit." I said, "Okay." We sat down at the, at the uh, dining room table, and she said, "I filed for divorce yesterday. I've told this person, that person, the other person, and, and um, when you'll be here at uh, seven o'clock to list the house. And I've never dealt with financial problems in my life." And, uh, I'm just not prepared to live this way and I really don't want to talk about it.
0: And so now and The irony is I had a
1: consulting check in my pocket that brought everything current, which, you know, was irrelevant. But now I, I said, so let me get this straight, you don't want to talk about it. And I went over and I got a baccarat champagne food out of the, out of the uh, cabinet and I handed it to her and I said, do me a favor, just throw this at the wall once. And give me a little stream and she handed it back and said I don't emote.
0: Now no, that then, wasn't her stuff.
1: Then my father died a week down, later. Then the cat got eaten by a coyote. Both of my corporations were in the bucket. A few months later I lost my mom and I found myself sitting on the bottom stoop of the manse with my mother's pistol in my hand. And I actually stuck the, the muzzle in my mouth and went, wait a fucking minute, I think I'm going to off me. So I left the manse, went next door, and gave my piece to uh, an old World War II vet. And I went down to the VA in Menlo Park. And that was the same year that they came up with a moniker post-traumatic stress disorder, not disorder, syndrome. I sat down with a very savvy psychiatrist. I walked in the door. I said, "I think I'm suicidal." And you know how that goes. In about 22 seconds, you're sitting in front of somebody. Oh yeah. yeah with a prescription is... pad. Oh yeah. Well, this guy. They were drugging with, you back then too, huh? Uh, Thorazine back then. So I, the woman said to me, "Well, what's going on in your life?" And I said, "Well, my wife left me." Um, my dad died. The cat died. My mom died. Both of my corporations cratered. I lost the house. I lost everything. And she started to laugh.
0: The psychiatrist is laughing at you now.
1: She's dabbing at her eyes with a with a Kleenex. Well, by the way, is probably the best thing that ever happened. And she looked me in the eye and said, "Did it?" And I told her, "I'm having flashbacks." And she said, well, did it ever occur to you when your life goes to shit is when you're gonna have flashbacks and when you're gonna be hypervigilant and when all this other stuff is gonna show up? And I said, well, yeah, I guess that stands to reason. And she said, did it ever occur to you to give yourself permission to be depressed? I went, oh, no.
0: Not, not the corporate CEO, the man who's got it together, the man Absolutely. who's fighting for self-worth.
1: Absolutely. So here I am in my Brooks Brothers suit, and or my Nordstrom suit, or my Armani suit, or whatever. I had enough money left over when I liquidated everything. I paid a year's rent. I moved into a cabin in the Redwoods, and I worked on me. Stop.
0: Say that again for, our, for everybody out there. I want you all to catch this. What did you just say one more time?
1: I had enough money left over, I found a little cabin in the Redwoods, I I paid a woman a year's rent in advance, and I moved in with a specific intention and in fact spent a year working on me.
0: Working on you?
1: And what I came to realize was first of all, I had to own uh, all of my ghosts and not run away from them, I had to face them. And along the way I had a lot of support. I had some wonderful people in my life. And a seminal moment happened with a uh, fellow, Jerry O'Rourke, who was uh, then Monsignor O'Rourke in the Archdiocese of San Francisco, um, shared with me that, you know, just be, you know, it, it, oh, me, boy, you know, just because I, I wear this crazy collar, you know, doesn't mean I believe this stuff every day. Really, Jerry? So, oh, you know, there are days when I don't want to be saying the mass. He said, and how the hell do you think it'd be if I sat down with somebody dying and said, oh, today I don't believe this stuff? He said, so here's how I handled it, my boy. He said, I put it on my left shoulder, I take the conversation in my head for Sharon, and I remind myself of who I be. And he said, Your job, boy, is to find out ontologically who the hell you be.
0: Now, I use that word ontological a lot. You use it a lot. I've, if, if you know me on here, and of course some of y'all don't, this thing's just got bigger than me now. Ontological. What's it mean? You
1: use it in formal sense. Ontology is about being. Epistemology is what our society is based on. It's the study of how we know, but not who we be.
0: To be is and, it's a hard thing, right?
1: Well, and we'll talk about that because it really brings us to the heart of things. So, you know, in the sense of what Jerry told me was, um, I thank it for Sharon, and I remind it of who I be. And who I be is redemption and love in the world. That's all. He says, there's no... Dogmatic theology involved in that is who I be and that's sufficient well I went to work on that who the hell do I be a money grab a grubbing, um, egotistical arrogant ass which is what I'd become running away and I played that game well and when I came to grips with the fact that At core, who I choose to be, if I want to, is not the brokenness, but it's possibility. And I spent a long time dancing and working with that. And what I came up with is who I be is love and compassion in the world, and who I be is the opening for transformation. Now, there's some precision in that. When I say I'm the opening for transformation, I'm not out to fix the world. But what I am is an opening for people to take from their experience of me, that which will empower them in terms that speak to them, not in terms of my pictures of how things ought to be.
0: So so what you're talking about is, is people actually Have the responsibility of interpretation of everything that's around them. I have to interpret you how I'm hearing you now. You have to interpret me.
1: Well you know we spend so much of our lives, I heard this years and years ago and I love it, so much of what passes for communication in our in our world and between couples, between parents and children, between co-workers. um, It's like radios. I turn my volume up and you turn your volume up and I turn my volume up and we're two radios on different stations turning the volume up. If I can't listen to, if I can learn to listen to your listening then I can speak into that instead of my listening. That's a peculiar way to put it. But if I'm open authentically to just be with you, without a judgment, without a preconceived notion of who you are, then there's an opportunity, regardless of what our politics might be or what our faith might be, I'm available to get you. You know, so, the old the science fiction expression I can rock
0: you." just to just to bring it back to. I gotta remember, you know I grew up hands of a brick mason, grew up living in a trailer. The side of town you don't go, you don't stop at a red light when the sun goes down. Um, it's, it's, this, that's the case for many of our tribe. Absolutely. There's a great song that, in a lot of ways, haunts each of us in this tribe is, I can't get no satisfaction.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: And so, what we're talking about when when, when folks join that church, when, when they sit down and they start talking with me and they talk with you, and, and you hear words like ontological value and being. In the Can back I, of your mind, you're thinking, "I can't get no satisfaction."
1: <laughs> you know, when uh, one of the one of the crazy things about being overeducated um, is, S. I. Hayakawa drew a distinction I used to teach teachers to teach my second career as an education, and I, this stuck out for me. I, I I read this in 1968, and this stuck with me, and I love it. He drew a distinction about abstraction. Now, as a teacher or as a professor or whatever, if I walk into a lecture hall, stand at a podium and say, Ladies and gentlemen, um, get out your notes. Uh, Today we're going to be having a a discussion about bovine species. Everybody in that dadgum room is going to go behind their eyeballs.
0: Meaning, Uh, they're they're going to fall asleep. They're going to fall asleep. I mean,
1: they're done. You're cooked. Now, you might. Another good word, eruditely. You might brilliantly do your professor stuff, but it's like noise. Yeah. On the other hand, if I walk into the podium walk into the room and smile, lean against the podium, and say, ladies and gentlemen, close your eyes. I want you to think about Bessie the cow. What she look like. You know, give everybody forty-five seconds a minute to think about Bo, about Bessie. And I'd say, you know, and say, okay, you can open your eyes. Now, anybody want to share about Bessie? You can take a few shares from their own. And you say, today we're going to talk about cows and Bessie. i got them. Oh, yeah. So when we talk with, with our highfalutin doctoral language of ontology and epistemology, the risk is that in our own brilliance, erstwhile, made up, we cut off people,
0: and we, miss, so, and the we miss the
1: opportunity to connect. Yeah, and in truth, the power of the word ontology, when you understand it, it truly is about about a ground of being, a way of being in the world that you're conscious of, that you choose. You know, as as when I look at the Gospels. Um, We're given a gift of redemption. I, I, there was an old monk that, that told me this story, and he was a fascinating guy. He'd been with Schweitzer in Africa. He was in his 90s. He was a fascinating character. Albert Schweitzer. And uh, yeah, that dude. And uh, one day he said to me, he says, Brother Daniel, so you know what life's about? No. He said, well, you know, the gospels are real simple. You fall on your arse. Redemption is giving yourself permission to get off your arse. And grace is giving yourself the permission to go on down the road with a smile till you fall on your arse again. And then you die. Now, to me, that's pretty cool. That, that to me, sums up the whole essence of the faith. And as a Buddhist, you know, one of the... In, in our practice in Buddhism, by the way, it's not mutually exclusive. Christianity and, mutu- and Buddhism not mutually exclusive by any stretch of the imagination.
0: Meaning they
1: you can, they can both. coincide. They, they coincide. They complement. And so in Buddhism we work to we develop the muscle, if you will. You know, like anything else, spiritual practice is building muscles. It's practice. It's falling on your arse, getting up, falling on your arse and getting up.
0: And giving yourself.
1: And giving yourself authentically to the process. And so in Buddhism, we work to really become more and more present in the moment. Now, in my head, uh, I got a hamster wheel, man. And that hamster wheel can take me to the past. It can take me to whatever shit I'm making up about what hasn't even happened yet, but all of it's usually avoiding just being here now. And so as I've developed the capacity to be here, in high school I was real good at being at the beach on the surfboard instead of in class, and I could look real engaged. Kind of a corollary to that, you know, but if I'm present, with you, if I be with you, and out of compassion, starting with yourself, and that was another lesson, another bird walk with that. It wasn't until I could have compassion for myself that I could get the Gospels.
0: Now before we talk talk about the Gospels, let me just make sure I'm up to date. You started out in life, visions of grandeur, join the military, you coffee thrown in your face, back to the bottom, you get off the plane, they spit on you, you fight back, you visions of grandeur, you head Visible all the way, well, no, you, okay, figuratively. So you need, figuratively. figuratively, but then you head up the corporate ladder for grandeur, great oh, yeah. suits, nice cars, grandeur, bam, back to the bottom. Then you find this idea about ontological value and being. And that Ferris wheel of trying to find something and to make yourself worthwhile and all these external things seems to
1: disappear. When you learn that you're whole and complete, just as you are and just as you are not. Just as I am. And just as I am not. And I am not. Then the curtain you lifts. Come as you are. Who you be, fundamentally, is perfect.
0: Because now, I think and only at that point can we talk about the gospels or or any other form of religion. It only makes sense with the idea of like you put all that other stuff,
1: that other crap. Well, aside. either that or you're trapped in mental masturbation.
0: And exactly. masturbation
1: can be fun, but
0: but it's just but it's just it's noise. A couple of seconds rubbing and it, it's over.
1: Yeah. So you know, here we are and when you when you can get when you can grant you know when you have that epiphany that says i really truly am perfect as i am and as i am not i was created that way i will die that way i will go on to whatever is next that way and that my journey is an opportunity it's a process there is no end point there is no endpoint. You know, I, I the first is it first Corinthians where uh, I spake as a child when yeah. I was a child. Well, I'm not a child I think, anymore. It I'm seventy-three anyway. years old. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, so it life is processive. Uh, who I am at seventy-three is not remotely who I I was at the age of seventeen or twenty or thirty, even fifty or sixty. And you know, so um that's a glorious thing about being alive is you're never stuck at an endpoint. And what redemption is about is supporting you in the journey in a way that empowers you to keep growing and to bump it into the wall and falling on your butt. And giving yourself permission. And giving yourself permission to do it again. To do it again. There have been times, there have been a, a number of times in my life when I nearly killed myself. Um, and I mean seriously. And uh, every one of us in Vet church know that moment and those moments.
0: Oh, that's why we're here. That's why that we That is this. why
1: we're here. And you know what, what allows us when we tap into what allows us to move on is when we tap into the majesty of who we are as part of God, and God is part of us—not some dude in his white beard sitting up on a cloud, but
0: because that's it, straight up BS.
1: It is straight up bullshit, yeah. and 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 uh, you know. So when you get that that it's that. I, I, it doesn't matter what language you use. That that energy, that that divinity, that God, that Godhead, that essence of is who we are. It isn't a separation. It isn't. There there is no God over there. There is no you over there. No. You know, there is there is fundamentally. Um, That's. Us.
0: Thank you for joining us for part one of this Vet Church interview. Your feedback is welcome. Find out more at vetchurch.com or retiredarmychaplain.com.